if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 21 is a passage that I think most of you uh, will be familiar with. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me, gave to be with me, um, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's uh, name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, I pray for your help that we might all not only understand it, but believe it. And um, as a result, uh, hold on more tightly by faith to our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to deliver us 
from the awful effects and the curse of the fall. We pray in His name. Amen. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week that caught my eye. Um, It was an opinion piece and it was Why Public Schools Should Teach the Bible. The subtitle of this article was uh, Westerners, Westerners Cannot Be Considered Literate Without a Basic Knowledge of This Foundational Text. And so here's how the article began. Uh, have you ever sensed in your own, your own life that the handwriting was on the wall? Or encouraged a loved one to walk the straight and narrow? Have you ever laughed at something that came out of the mouth of babes or gone the extra mile for an opportunity that might vanish in the twinkling of an eye? If you have, then you've been thinking of the Bible. These phrases are just a drop in the bucket, again, another biblical phrase, of the many things that we say and do every day that have their origins in the most read, most influential book of all time. The Bible has affected the world for centuries in innumerable, innumerable, innumerable ways, including art, literature, philosophy, government, philanthropy, uh, education, social justice, and humanitarianism. One would think that a text of such significance would be taught regularly in schools. Not so. This is because of the stumbling block, again, a biblical phrase, uh, that is posed by the powers that be in America. It's time to change that for the sake of the nation's children. It's time to encourage, perhaps even mandate, the teaching of the Bible in public schools as a primary document of Western civilization. I think this is true. I agree with it. As a culture, we are hiding our children's education from the most influential document that has shaped our culture. And it makes no sense to me that that we fight so hard to, uh, to keep it hidden from our children. This morning, we're going to look at one of the most foundational passages in this influential document that we, of course, call the Bible and we believe is God's very Word. Without understanding this foundational passage and then believing it also to be true, I don't think you will be able to understand and make sense of our world, of our destiny, or even make sense of your inmost thoughts and desires. Even though most people have a basic knowledge of this passage, I don't think many people have thought through the far-reaching implications of this passage. And so it is my prayer that God would help me lead us through this vastly uh, important passage that we might see um, the implications very clearly. We're going to, in this passage, uh, meet a serpent. Apparently this serpent is not like we typically think of serpents. Apparently this serpent did not crawl on his belly since that is a result of the curse. Uh, So maybe he had legs. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it was a manifestation of, of Satan or whether Satan inhabited this serpent and then spoke through this particular animal. But I do firmly believe um, 
this the the Bible's account here. Um, we live in a in, in a universe where there is a natural, physical, seen world, but there's also a supernatural, unseen world. And when the serpent enters, we are, we are introduced to this spiritual side of the universe. The Bible recognizes both the physical and the spiritual. Um, it sees both sides of the universe. We're also going to observe Adam and Eve's interactions with this serpent, their response to God after the fall, and of course God's response to them. And then finally, um, we're going to meet Eve's descendant, uh, who it turns out is God's gift to humanity to save us from the lies of the serpent and the curse of the fall. So let's just jump right into the text. Uh, here with verse 1, we are alerted that the serpent was very crafty. It says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I don't know if Eve knew that the serpent was particularly crafty, um, but uh, he approaches her. He asks her a very simple uh, question. He says, did God actually say that you shall not eat uh, of any tree in the garden? There's two more remarks I'm going to make uh, real briefly about this question. First of all, God did not say that. God said just the opposite. God said that they could eat from any tree in the garden except for that one in the middle. See, God made the entire world for man. We, we saw this a few weeks ago, uh, the sermon on, on the kings of the earth, that God made uh, human beings to be kings of the earth, to rule over the birds of the, of the air, the, the um, beast of the field, and over the fish of the sea. He gave rule and dominion to man because man was to be the king. There, and so God created the entire world for man to rule over it. And God expressly said that the world was not only good, but very good because He had made it for man. God withheld no good thing for man. Remember how in Genesis 2, it's, God realized it's not good for man to be alone. And so He made, um, he made from Adam's rib... Uh, Eve. So he withheld no good thing from mankind, yet the serpent, or more accurately, we could say Satan, is trying to make God appear to be very stingy. The second remark is less obvious. When Satan spoke to Eve here in verse 1, and he said, Did God really, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The you there is plural. Um, and that's important because we realize that even though Satan is addressing the woman, that Adam is right there with her. And uh, so he is speaking to both of them. Satan knew that he was putting forth an untruth in his question. Um, and he knew, 
he knew the answer to this question even before he asked it. But what he's doing is he's using this untrue question to bait Eve into engaging him. And of course, Eve fell right into his trap. She answered him. She gave a generally correct response. But then she went on to change God's wording. See if you can catch where she went off track. She said to uh, the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you catch it? She added to God's Word. Uh, God did not say that they couldn't touch the tree, uh, the fruit from the tree. And I'm not sure we should make much of this. But I think it should be noted because she ends up illustrating a pattern that we often uh, fall into. We press certain aspects of our obedience, certain aspects of God's commands beyond what God actually says. While at the very same time, blatantly ignoring God's express commands in more important areas. She said, we must not eat of it. We must not even touch it. And then what did she do? She completely disobeyed the really important part. She ate of the fruit. The second, uh, I mean, Satan's second remark is um, no longer subtle. He's hooked her in, he realizes. And so he says two things very directly. He said that Adam and Eve would not surely die. And secondly, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. These statements are a direct challenge to everything God has done for Adam and Eve in creating the world for them. Satan is telling Adam and Eve that God is lying. That, that he is, God is lying when you say that when he said to them, you will surely die when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and the reason he's, he's, in, he's saying that God is lying is he wants Adam and Eve to begin believing that God wants them to remain less than he is. In other words, implied in Satan's statements is that God is withholding so much for, from them. And that He really doesn't love them. In fact, God created them uh, in order that they might be His slaves. So Satan is saying, God is not fair. He doesn't love you. He's a liar. Eve takes the bait that uh, Satan had cast out there. And now Satan sets the hook. Um... And Eve, at this moment, begins eyeing the fruit in a new way. She, begins, she began considering that this fruit indeed was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. In other words, we can paraphrase it and say, Eve thought the fruit looked yummy. But then she saw it as more than just a nice snack. Uh, verse 6 says, as it goes on in the passage, says that she saw that the fruit was desirable for making one wise. In other words, she wants to be as wise as God is. And so she's aiming at equality with God. She believes Satan when, when Satan said that she would be like God. 
This is the sin of pride. So now, because we are children of Adam and Eve, because we are born as uh, fallen people, we now love lifting ourselves up. We now love setting ourselves above others. We now, um, we now love thinking these wonderful thoughts about ourselves. And by the same token, we hate lowering ourselves. We hate admitting that we have done something wrong. Pride has its grip on each and every one of us. And if you say that you are free from pride... Well, I'd say that's a prideful statement. Not only was Eve trying, aiming at equality with God, Eve was also trying to gain wisdom apart from God. Um, she was trying to gain wisdom even uh, against God's express command. God said, you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, she saw that it was good for, for gaining wisdom. And so she decides she's going to gain wisdom her way and reject what God said. This is the sin of rebellion. We think we know best. We are slow because we are fallen creatures. We are slow to receive counsel. We are quick to choose our own path. This is what makes parenting so dreadfully difficult. As parents, we choose our techniques uh, over God's wisdom, while our children are choosing their own path rather than God's wisdom. I mean, it can be a lose-lose on both ends. As fallen human beings, we struggle with authority because we want to be our own authority. And ultimately, we are rejecting God's authority when we do that. So the essence of all sin is pride and rebellion. But there's another aspect of sin that's always joined with them, and that is the aspect of folly. Eve had to reject all of God's goodness in order uh, for her to seek to be equal with God. She had to reject all that she knew to be true in order to commit that first sin. Normally I don't do this. I'm going to do this this morning. I'm going to ask you, um, how many of you uh, know that it is displeasing to God to sin against Him? I want to, I want to see a show of hands for all of you who, who know that it is displeasing um, to sin against God. Pretty much everybody, and I'm, as I'm scanning out, I, I saw every hand. Um, so how many of you, again, show of hands, choose to sin anyway, even though you know it is so foolish? <laughs> sin is always an act of pride, an act of rebellion, and an act of folly. And by the way, it wasn't just Eve... She gave some of her. Uh, she gave uh, the fruit to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. He had been right there witnessing this whole conversation. So what happened? Um, or what happened now 
as a result of this first sin? What were the results of this initial disobedience to God? Uh, Well, first of all, verse 7, there's actually a bit of irony here. Satan was right. (laughs) Their eyes would be opened. Their eyes were opened. And verse 7, now the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, and so they were ashamed. In another bit of irony, they also knew good and evil. Prior to sin, they only knew good. They only experienced goodness. They experienced this goodness in the core of their souls. But now, as a result of eating this fruit, they know evil as well. They are experiencing evil, not only around them, but inside them. Because they are experiencing evil, then they hid themselves from God. Verse 8, when God showed up in the garden in the cool of the day, they heard God walking. Uh, So now they're afraid of God because they have evil inside of them. And um, they run and hide, verses 8 through 10. And so since God recognizes that they are hiding from Him, He asks um, if they had eaten the forbidden fruit. And of course God knew the answer to that question. God can see everything. Uh, He can even see the secret thoughts and desires of the heart. He can see the secret thoughts and desires of all of our hearts. It's foolish to try and hide your sins from God. And so, and I've said this before, keep short accounts with God. And what I mean by that is when you do sin... Confess your sin. Don't try and hide it. Don't try and wait till the end of the day to to confess it beside your bed. Confess it then. Turn from it quickly. Keep short accounts with God. Because He knows our sin better than we do. Well, Adam tried to hold on to his sin by playing the blame game. Look at verse 12. Uh, After God had asked him, You know, what's happening here, essentially? The man said, The woman whom you gave me um, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So he blames his wife, first of all, throws her under the bus, and then he turns and says, But you're the one who gave her to me. And he blames God. And all he's trying to do, very foolishly, is hide himself from his own sin. God knows that he's going to um, address Adam in due time. So he turns his attention first to Eve. And let me say this. God is going to address all of us in, in due time. Just because His attention seems to go elsewhere, just like at God uh, turned from Adam when, he point, when Adam pointed at Eve, and he turned to Eve, um, he still was going to get back to Adam. God is going to get around to us in due time. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed to die once, after that comes the judgment. Eve tried to blame, tried to blame game two in verse 13. She says, This is a serpent. He deceived me. And I ate. So then again, God turns His attention from Eve 
to the serpent. And we're going to skip over what God said to the serpent because we're mostly interested in what the curse of the fall means for us. And so in verse 16, we see the curse that is laid on the woman. In verse 16, God laid down a twofold curse on the woman. First, God said that He would multiply their pain in childbearing. Now, being a male, I obviously have uh, never experienced what that is like. Um, I've heard what it was like. Men, do you want to know what it's like and uh, how it's been described to me what, what having a baby is like? It's basically like taking your upper lip and pinching down real hard and then stretching your upper lip over your head. <laughs> um, so there's, as a result of the curse, now pain and childbearing for the woman. But now there's a second half to the curse. You see, verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, my wife is out with my son. He had a 103 fever last night. He went from a virus now to, I think, strep. Uh, so she's not here today. But I'm sure if she were here, she would say that with a husband like me, that's not much of a curse. <laughs> at the point, at the risk of putting words in her mouth, she might even say that having a husband like me is more of a blessing than a curse. Hey, it's our anniversary weekend, uh, sort of, so allow me a little slack. And I say sort of our, our anniversary. Most of you know we were born on Leap Day, the 29th. Years that we don't have um, a, a real anniversary, it just kind of meanders. It starts on like the 28th and, and will go on till like the 2nd or 3rd until Rachel says, Hey, wait a minute, I've got a birthday here. <laughs> Rachel was born one year and one day after our marriage, so she had her birthday yesterday. But uh, So anyway, back to the subject at hand. I'm being a little funny about this. It's because that's not what is intended here when it says your desire will be for your husband. In fact, it means something far different. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Some of you aren't going to like what this means. Uh, I've addressed this passage in both of my previous pulpits, uh, both of my previous pastorates. And uh, I got not just disagreeable answer or responses, but angry responses. So... This is what I believe the Bible teaches, and I am um, heading headlong into it. Um, I don't want to anger anyone, but I'm, I, I feel like I, well, I need to be faithful to the Scriptures. So here we are in Genesis 3. But look over at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, in order to understand this phrase about your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In Genesis 4, verse 7, God is telling Cain to be very careful because God knows that Cain hates Abel and that Cain will be tempted to kill his brother. He tells Cain that sin desires him. The same word over here in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband. He says sin desires you, but you must rule over it. Same, same sentence construction here. Same thought here. 
Um, so, so when you read the curse upon the woman, I'm sorry, I skipped over a sentence. In other words, sin desires to dominate Cain. And God's saying, but you must rule over it. Uh, so when you read over verse 16, uh, the curse on the woman, I believe it should be read as part of the curse. Eve, your desire will be to dominate your husband, and he shall rule over you. God is telling Eve um, that that will be her desire. It will be her desire to rule over her husband. But in the created order, doesn't mean that women are less than men. Uh, but in the the roles that God has given men and women, the um, the man will uh, rule over her. I believe that the curse is that uh, women desire to rule in direct opposition to the created order. Their inner struggle is that they believe if they had more authority, if they could do things their way, then they would do things better. And probably in many cases, they certainly could. Uh, But it would bring them more inner fulfillment to their lives if they could simply have that rule and authority uh, over their husbands. But sadly... God has created the man as the head of the woman. Ephesians 5 says that very clearly. Um, so if we start taking a pen knife to the second half of Genesis 3.16, because we don't like it, then we've got to take a pen knife to, Gen- to Ephesians 5, because it's teaching the same thing. And then we're jumping all over the, the Bible with our little pen knife, cutting out the things that we don't want to believe. The truth of the matter is that men, frankly, have ceded control in their homes over to their wives. Uh, In just about every culture, men pound their chest to trumpet their rule, but it's really the women who generally dominate the home. And uh, that is part of the fall, and... uh, and uh, that is not the way God um, has designed the creation. In fact, I, I'll go further since I'm out here in the, the, deep, the deep waters. I believe that women dress provocatively uh, in order to exercise rule over men. I think that's all part of the curse. Listen to First Peter, verses 3 through 5. Peter says to the women, Do not let your adorning to be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So we'd have to take a few, the pen knife to Ephesians, uh, into First Peter chapter chapter three as well. I know it is not popular, um, but I believe this is what God's word says. Now, uh, the curse for the man 
Again, it's a twofold curse, just like the curse on the serpent, just like the curse on the woman. So now Adam receives a twofold curse. Uh, the curse for the man is that uh, the ground is cursed and his work is going to be frustrating, and then he's going to die. A life's man, I'm, I'm sorry, a life's man, a man's life will be marked by frustration. So we have songs, take this job and you know how the rest of it goes. Um, man will work tirelessly his entire life. And as he's working, um, whether you be a farmer, then the thorns and the thistles are going to grow up. Whether you're working in a white-collar job, there's still going to be Murphy's Law at work. Every, every difficulty is going to pop up and make, make um, the work uh, difficult. And, um, and, and life is ultimately going to be frustrating. Nothing's going to be easy. And then after you spend your entire life working, earning money by the sweat of your brow... Then you're going to die. Um, and what man does, see, as women might try and exercise more authority to bring more inner peace, men try, they spend more energy trying to escape the frustration, trying to escape the responsibility. And I think that then they often uh, exercise in actually doing their work for both the men and the women. And we're getting close here to the end. For both the men and the women, the only escape from the effects of the curse, of course, is to flee to Jesus Christ. The desire to rule for the woman is tamed by being ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ. The deep-seated frustration of the man is subdued by his resting in Christ. And then finally, there is the curse of death. Death entered into the world through sin. Therefore, we will all die unless Jesus comes back uh, first, of course. Uh, our bodies wear. We are liable to sickness as was illustrated in my own home last night. Uh, I mean, Will went from, from happy-go-lucky yesterday afternoon to, to just about as listless as he could be as that fever gripped him. Uh, and then we become old, and all of this is because of the presence of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We are born with Adam and Eve's sin hanging around our necks. And we must all pay the tab for their sin. It's inescapable. But then there's one part of the curse that we skipped over. And that is the curse on the serpent. This twofold curse. We're only going to look at the second part of this curse because of time. So verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This doesn't mean that as a result of the, of the, the curse that women will be scared of snakes. Frankly, there's nothing more that I'm... That's the only, I think, phobia I have. You know, shoot me with a gun. That'd be fine, but don't let me touch a snake. 
Um, as you trace through the Bible, it becomes clear that the entire history of the world is summarized in this one verse, Genesis 3.15. Because as a part of the curse, God has established enmity or hatred, warfare, between the children of Satan, and that would include us outside of Jesus Christ, and the children of Christ. And again, that would include all believers in Jesus Christ. We're going to see through the book of Genesis that God begins separating peoples. And it's because of the outworking of the curse. But God, in His grace, is gathering a people to Himself. Gathering a people who were, as we read in our responsive reading, dead in our transgressions and sins. Um, by nature, children of wrath. And God is gathering them. And He is transforming them into the children of God. And then Christ redeemed those, those, um, those who were formerly um, children of wrath by becoming the substitute for their sins. By taking the venom of the serpent into His heel figuratively speaking. The venom of the serpent, of course, is sin. He took the sting of sin in our place. And then, as the serpent bit his heel, Jesus crushed his head. And we have redemption through Jesus Christ. The curse pervades everything. The curse pervades your every thought. The curse pervades this entire world. This entire universe is broken because of the curse. Jesus came back not only to address one little part of the curse and bring us forgiveness of sins, He came to completely transform, to completely roll back the effects of the curse. Flee to Him now. He is your only hope. Let's pray. Father, as we have gone long today in Your Word, we have looked deeply into the brokenness that resides in us. Because of Adam and Eve's fall, we sinned all. God, I pray that every person here would flee to the Lord Jesus, not only for forgiveness of sins, not only to get into heaven, but because we are all so radically broken. Father, I ask that You would mend us and reverse the, um, the effects of the fall uh, in Jesus Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.